Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey guys, I have the most exciting news for you ever. Um, This is an exciting week. This is three parts of exciting, incredible news. First one, I'm sitting in Madison. I just finished recording my third album, which is the best work that I've ever done. I think it's um, really different and interesting and what I've been able to figure out how to do with stand-up is different than a lot of what's out there and i'm super pumped about it and and it's been killing all over the place and i was so happy to get the album done which is um a lot of a lot of the album is based around me breaking my feet last year which i've mentioned a few times and um and so the album is actually going to be released on may 26th they're doing a um a special sneak preview of it on May 25th, which is the one-year anniversary of me breaking my feet. Um, so it's going to come out then. Uh, that's also my birthday, by the way. Happy birthday to me. And so you can look forward to that. I'll give you more details. The preview thing's going to be on um, on satellite radio. And I'll have more details as that gets closer. Uh, things could change between now and then. Who knows, but that's the plan for now. Um, part number two, I started physical therapy a while back. I got this stupid vacuum off of my foot, and I started working with a cane. And last night, I walked off of a comedy stage for the first time in 315 days. So I still have a ways to go. I have no idea how long I'm going to be on a cane, but I am off crutches i'm not throwing them away just yet i can't get too far on a cane but uh this is incredible progress um because what i didn't want to tell you guys earlier in the year as i was a bit worried about losing my foot at one point um and so yeah so i'm it looks like i'm gonna have 
a fully functional foot one day. So that's exciting. And also, the Here We Are podcast has some very exciting news. I, um, and this is thanks in no small part to the help I've gotten from doing um, a whole bunch of other podcasts. And um, over the last week or two, um, I, I was a guest on Doug Loves Movies. And then I, I had a real, I guess, standout from all the feedback that I've been getting a, a really um, amazing episode of You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes, which is um, one of the top and best comedy podcasts out there and has tons of listeners. And so uh, thank you, all you new listeners that heard me from that and are tuning into this. I promise I will not disappoint. You should go back and start from number one because there's a lot to catch up on. Um, so thank you to Pete Holmes and Doug Benson for that because it actually launched the Here We Are podcast into the comedy podcast charts. Uh, you probably didn't know that was a thing. It is, and it's incredibly important in the comedy podcast world, and it's where a lot of people discover new podcasts. I was in the top 50 for a good week or so, and um, I think I hit 32 at one point, which that might not seem like a lot, but if you looked at all of the podcasts that were... Um, uh, that uh, that I was beating. They're like podcasts that I would hope to get on one day. They're big, huge podcasts that um, are quite popular and have been around for a lot longer than last November. So uh, what an exciting time. And all uh, there's been more iTunes reviews flowing in. Um, nothing but five-star reviews. I have one four-star review so far. That's the worst review that I have on iTunes. So if you guys can keep all those five-star reviews coming and uh, and write the review, take some time to write a review for me on iTunes, that's helpful. There's also Stitcher and whatever other platforms that you're using. Write reviews and rate it on there. And... How exciting is that? That's about the best week um, a person can have. So thank you guys so much for all your support. I can't believe this podcast is already gaining traction um, a, a solid year before I, I thought it would. Because um, we're only 21 episodes in or something like that. And um, yeah, I should have probably checked that number before just blurting it out. In this intro, yes, this is episode 21, and this is a great one. This this is a lot of um, fundamental stuff. If I if I could do the podcast exactly the way that I wanted, I would have a guess in order of the ideas that I wanted to build on, and just because of logistics and booking and where I am in the country and everything else. Some of the, sometimes things are a little more sporadic and, and I don't get to set up um, some ideas that are really fundamental. And this one is uh, some stuff that is absolutely necessary for undering, understanding stuff going forward. And, and the more you can uh, really listen to this episode because some of these ideas really apply to a lot of how um, behavior works and how we behave in everyday life and what's driving a lot of what we do. So 
Um, I I apologize for the long-winded intros. I I considered uh, I'm I'm considering taking out the intros to this podcast um, for the most part, and because I I'm better at introducing things in the beginning um, of, of the interview anyway, and so I don't want to to be redundant or anything. And I I know sometimes people don't like. Um, uh, these long-winded intros, very understandable, but um, as you just heard, amazing, amazing news. So thank you guys so much for all the support. Uh, all this stuff just gives me the motivation to keep learning and studying and reaching out and finding um, new great guests and um, broadening our knowledge and learning stuff together. Thank you. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Welcome, everybody, to the Here We Are podcast. This is Shane Moss. I have a very special treat. We have a, a visitor from Australia, one of my favorite places in the entire world. I've been there five times now, and uh, I, I kind of want to move there if I can make that work. I, I would love to spend months there out of a year. Um, but my guest today is Robbie Wilson from the University of Queensland. How are you doing, Robbie? Very good, Shane. How are you? I'm terrific. I'm excited. I'm glad that we could make this work. Um, cool. Our mutual friend, Marty Hazelton, put this together for us, and we're sitting here in... <laughs> Her children's playroom, actually. Odd course of events. Marty's having a barbecue, and uh, so, so we're, we needed to find a quiet place. And I'm, we should really take a picture of this to post <laughs> uh, to the site. Um, I don't think there's anything odd about us sitting down here in a, <laughs> in a kids' room <laughs> in her in her six-year-old children's little play chairs. Uh, I'm definitely posting a picture of this. Please don't let me forget to take pictures when we're done with this. And um, you know, I, I I was taking a look at some of your work, and what I thought would be um, uh, uh, a good introduction into your work, not only that, but would be really helpful for this podcast. I think you would be the man to set up some of these ideas. There is kind of this um, very big and and fundamental idea that I've hinted at in many episodes and have maybe been mentioned, and it's something that, that kind of runs through a lot of ideas and things that we've talked about, but we haven't broke it down and given any um, basics for people and I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of trying to cater this to people that have never heard about any of this stuff before the general public um, the idea of um, advertising fitness and um, and how how we signal fitness and how and, and the idea of these honest indicators and how um, how animals and and humans, um, uh, cheat and how and how we detect cheating and uh, and and so forth and I, and I looked at some of your work I, I think it's um, really uh, there's you definitely have some specifics that I want to hear all about but could you just 
um, kind of just give a general for for someone that's not familiar with this idea at all. Could you kind of explain the the thinking, the logic behind this? Sure. So I think what you're you're asking about is the the idea of signals in nature between individuals of the same species. Yeah. And animals do this for a variety of reasons. And most animals, I think every animal species would would use these sorts of signals. Unlike humans, most other species can't use um, language. So they use visual signals or sometimes chemical signals as well. And what they're trying to do is basically tell another individual of the species who they are, their intentions, whether they're um, sexually active or not, whether they are, are um, a big bad foe, whether they're friends. And so it's a really neat way of trying to display that. And some of the, the obvious ones um, that people talk about, um, maybe something like the, the, the tail of a peacock. So male peacock displays this huge trail of feathers and what he's basically saying to a female is, look at my trail of feathers. I am a big, sexy male and you want to mate with me. But he can also display this big lot of tail feathers to an opponent. And in that case, he's saying, I am very intimidating. I'm big. I've got this huge trail of feathers. You don't stay away from me. Otherwise, I'm going to beat you up. And why does this big trail of feathers signal such a thing you you would think that this uh that this large trail of feathers that look from um just an objective point of view if you aren't a peacock you're going well why is this thing has to lug this big heavy thing on its back now it can't fly as well and everything else so how is that an indicator of so that's i mean you you, you've touched on it straight away which is it's a huge trail of feathers and and this is um, behind the idea of what maintains the honesty of signals in nature. Obviously, there's a huge benefit for, a, for an individual animal to try and lie and manipulate to another one in, in its, um, of its species. So particular signals that are, are, are easy to lie about or cheat about and even possibly between species, there's like a blowfish. Yeah, that's that, right. That's yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, hey, look how big and scary I am. Yeah, and and then uh, and then and then there's uh, oh oh geez, what what are the um oh the big the fiddler the, crabs with the huge no the arms? jumping oh. uh, the um, the stotting gazelle perhaps the, the yeah the, <laughs> the the gazelle that yeah talking about in in between species yeah not, that's not to right get off topic yeah so the gazelle that kind of jumps to signal to predators or either to communicate to to its pack that that uh hey there's danger coming possibly or possibly it's going hey uh hey look at look at me look how high i jump look how fit i am go go after someone else yes they're gonna go be after an Fred over there who's gonna get nailed <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah exactly so the idea is that for these signals to be um to be honest there has to be some sort of cost we need to know that they're not lying about their their um, abilities at all. And so if we go back to the male peacocks, if they are displaying this huge trail of feathers, then it is a big cost not only to grow these feathers, but then to lug them around. They're going to make them more obvious to predators. And so if you've got a male peacock with this huge trail, 
And a female has a look at this male, she's going to say to herself, wow, he is so good. He's such a hot male that he can grow all of these feathers and can live them with them and survive with this big cost. Yeah. Look at this big, heavy thing and nothing's got me yet, ladies. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that idea um, has been called the handicap principle. And the, the animals... And that was, um, was it Zahari? Or? Zahavi, Amot Zahavi. Zahavi. Yeah. Um, a fascinating um, Israeli um, scientist. I've met him before. Um, a, a genius of an individual and, uh, yeah, a fascinating to talk with. And this was the very controversial, too, when he kind of first came up with this idea, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. When he first came up with this idea that, um, well, th the problem was that um, when you come up with these ideas about evolution, people want to know how they work mathematically. Mm. And all the mathematical biologists and uh, the population modelers couldn't get his idea to work. And, um, and so everyone thought that it was just a crazy idea from this crazy guy. Eventually, um, that he, he came up with the idea that you only grow this big cost if you're in a good condition. And so that's what they call a condition dependent. So if you've got um, virtually no food around, then you don't grow this big costly signal. But if the conditions are right, then you can display how genetically brilliant and superior you are and you can start to grow this signal. And once you added that notion into the mathematical models, it all worked and everyone thought Zahavi was a genius. Yeah, that's, that, that's the story of every great discovery. Is that, <laughs> this guy's mad. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, uh, it, yeah, I was. I mean, that's so fascinating because I just recently on an episode um, had uh, Marlene Zook on talking about parasites, and and it was kind of the uh, we 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 like I said, we just touched on this, didn't really properly set it up, but just the idea of of some some of these parts that are the most susceptible to parasites end up being the most attractive ones if you can have them and if you can have them big and everything else because uh, because it's this big display that you aren't that you don't have um these parasites absolutely yeah i mean she was the the co-founder of you know one of the most important ideas about um mate choice and mate display um and that was the idea of of parasites and and when you're a male and you're trying to display these sexual signals to um, other males or to females that you compromise your immune system. And if, um, if your immune system is, is not that compromised, but you're still signaling these big, you know, showy feathers to, uh, to, uh, another fem to a female, then you are an attractive, brilliant male because you can display these things that are huge cost, cost your immune system, but you're not sick. You're looking great, right? I, I think there's like, um, uh, like a very red-faced monkey. Or I, f I forget what the name of the species is. Um, and uh, so my my podcast is very stream of consciousness, so I, I'm not very good <laughs> with the details along, along the way. So I apologize. Um, but but there's there's some uh, red-faced uh, monkey, and, and I guess within their species, one of their big things is I think it's malaria or something like that. One of the indicators yeah. of of having that disease is is paleness in the skin. So having this big right red face is an advertisement of oh hey yeah, reds are really expensive color to make in nature, and so um, you usually see bright red colors in males that are quite healthy. 
and it's a really great way of advertising. Oh, there's a there's a signal off in the background right now, <laughs> which is a dog barking. That's Marty's dog barking right now. That's another great signal to talk to talk about. Is because you know you can tell a female that's a kilometre away hears a dog barking straight away. She can know the approximate size of that animal because the small dog is going to go yuck, 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 yuck. with the large dog is going to be oh 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 oh. And so this is a beautiful signal. Not only does it say that, you know, I'm aggressive towards the threat at the time, but it can be a great signal of size to an opponent that's a kilometre away. And it's, uh, it's probably a good example of, of, um, of a species trying to fake it as well because it's always these little guys that yeah. are, that are <laughs> all talk, just, just these uh, little yippers uh, yeah. making, making all the noise. There's a fascinating example of that. And so um, in lots of species of frogs, they, the, the male frogs go around the, the pond and they start calling. And the females love a deep call because it's a good indicator of size. And so that they can go and hop over to that male frog over there that's been um, making this beautiful call that indicates he's large. But there's some because species... Because maybe he... Uh, well, I know some species of frogs, the males will sit on the eggs. Or, or there's, there must be some benefit to him being large in that species or, or he can just survive better or something. Yeah, it's, it's often an indicator of large sizes that they've, they've reached a, um, an older age. So they're probably better... At, um, at surviving long period of time, but also that probably got a superior spot in the pond because he's the bigger male and he's beat up on all the other ones. Ah. There's one species of, of Australian frog, the green tree frog, that is, um, is really tricky in this regard. And, and what it does is it goes inside these logs, hollow logs, and by calling in there, the acoustics of its call changes and it makes it sound like it's a really big frog. And so it's one way of manipulating the perceived size of the animal and how sexy it is just by choosing a hollow log to do his call. That's amazing. Um, so, uh, uh, and this will, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was wondering about the thing that, what is the, um, what's the species of crab that you brought up earlier? The fiddler um, crab. The fiddler crab has yeah. has something kind of similar that it's doing, where it's absolutely um, yeah. It's sometimes faking its fitness in different environments. That's right. Yeah. So the the fiddler crabs have got you know one of the the most amazing signals in in nature, and they've got one massive claw, and they sit out there on the mud flats at low tide, and they wave their claw around, and they do it for two reasons. One is to intimidate other males and to get them away from their little um, their, their little territory. And the other is to attract females. And the bigger the claw, then the more likely that a female is going to find him sexy and go and mate with him. But the funny thing is that sometimes they lose their claw. And when they lose their claw, they will regrow, regenerate a new one. But it might be the same size, but it's... It's less robust. It's not as strong, so it can't clamp down as hard. They can't really win many fights if another male um, challenges them. So they're essentially walking around with this fake appendage 
like the like the human Ken doll with the the uh, muscle implants or something. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the guy. This might be a strictly American story. <laughs> no, no, we're we're familiar with Barbie and Ken. <laughs> I've been following them for forty years. <laughs> well, there's like, a, but but are you familiar that there's like human? There's like these this couple that's been going under this plastic surgery trying to make themselves out to be yes i've, I've heard unfortunately i've heard about them yes <laughs> so unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> that just reminds me of that a little bit this guy's putting in these muscle implants but if you if you were to actually test uh his strength and in, in a fight or make him do bench press or whatever it might be he wouldn't do very well but if you're just say looking yeah that's ab absolutely right it's like those guys that stand outside the nightclub some of them are massive dudes but they're just big fat dudes they're not really got much behind them at all you're not really sure because you don't want to push them around and find out but yeah absolutely the, these these crabs have got big fake claws and it's quite funny when they come up against um, smaller crabs they've got slightly smaller claws they intimidate those ones so the, the, those ones that are smaller but would actually be stronger, they get intimidated and they back off. And they only get outed when they challenge a another crab that's their same size. And they don't get intimidated and they challenge them and they have a little fight. And the 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 Ken the Ken crab <laughs> he, he gets he gets beaten and I, has to go off. I hope that I've inspired a whole new uh, line of um, scientific vocabulary. <laughs> I do like interesting titles to my papers, so I'm thinking that Ken's going to get a mention. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that. Um, it, in some of the, the female crabs of this species, they can't tell the difference between uh -huh. the males at all. Because if you're not fighting the guy. Yeah, that's right. And, well, there's, there's some reason to, to think that they don't really care either. Because if this male has gone through the horrific experience of losing a claw and is good enough to grow back this claw, should a female really care at all that it's not real at all? He's demonstrated. She's her kids are not going to inherit the fake claw. They'll firstly grow the big claw to begin with, but they might inherit the characteristics that made that male survive through that horrific experience. And do you think? Um, I, I'm just curious. In my own mind, I'm probably like, well, if this is a factor, it's probably a, a small one in this regard. But do you do you think something along the lines of? Um, I'm not sure I've talked about it on the podcast before, but kind of the sexy sun theory, the idea of uh, whatever, just whatever is fashionable. If you have a son that inherits this fashionable thing, whether uh, it, it doesn't really matter if this claw, as long as he not, he's not put to the test, as long as he has one of these big claws and has mating opportunities, she's going to have a bunch of grandchildren. Yes, that's right. I mean... Uh, what the female really cares about is that she's going to have um, children and those children are going to have a good opportunity at reproductive success. Now, if the males, her sons, ha are big and sexy and that other females are willing to mate with her sons, then that's all she should really care about. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah sexy sons is the way forward. Uh, right. It, it, uh, it, like if... Um 
it, if, if pinball happened to take off and humans, and this was just the most, the males that were the best at pinball or something, it just happened to be the most, attra- even if, what a ridiculous thing to be good at. Who cares? You know, this isn't, this isn't getting you anywhere. You're just wasting all your quarters. Then it wouldn't even matter if you're a deaf, dumb, and blind kid as long as you could play a mean game of pinball. That would still make you attractive Absolutely. To, uh, to females. So are there any features that you wish that were sexy in our society which aren't? Well... Holes uh, in feet, perhaps? Yeah, I have an <laughs> enormous hole in my foot. And then I have... The worst part about it, too, is so I have, um, for the listeners, I have this ridiculous uh, vacuum that's like, uh, it's like the size of a Bible or something and then wrapped in a leather case. So I have it strapped to me all the time. But so the hose isn't dangling out and so I'm not tripping over it all the time. I have it running up through my pant leg. Um, and, and then, and then, you know, the, the, I carry it right along my side, but then this hose is exposed and it's going down into my pants. So it looks like I'm possibly wearing like a catheter or something. So, <laughs> so people, and it's like a clear hose and the, and there sometimes is a little bit of fluid in it. So, so, so I, I, so yeah, I, 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 um, I do very much wish that were the in thing. <laughs> Because I would have all the women right now. <laughs> Everything uh, is a signal in nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what are you signaling with that? <laughs> I'm I'm signaling um, poor decision making. <laughs> um, <laughs> possibly that I I um, don't have a good enough, a hearty enough immune system to fight off a bone infection when they put uh, when they which put probably means in. you're pumping all of this effort into lots of testosterone. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is so funny when you look at all of this stuff because um, it, when when you are first kind of introduced to evolution, it's the survival of the fittest thing. And when you're strictly looking at everything from that level, um, then so much of, well, especially human behavior, but animal behavior in general is just this obnoxiously silly uh, costly behaviors and and everything yeah. else that are that are just absolutely um, not really productive in any way. It's not like getting them more food or helping them survive. Well, it's survival long enough to get to r- reproduction, right? To maturity, and then it's getting as many kids out there as possible. Yeah. After you get to maturity. So survival means nothing at all. You can survive till you're in 120. If you don't breed, then your genes are not going to continue. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm still making, I'm still crutching around. Though I did have to, a girl was hitting on me on Facebook. I was coming to town recently and I had to be like, look, if you're looking to hook up, I'm on crutches and I have a huge hole in my foot in a vacuum. <laughs> right now, so. <laughs> so you're going and, and i i don't uh, so you might as well find that out now but uh, <laughs> but but yeah it, you can't um you, you can't just um uh, wish whatever <laughs> but, uh, whatever things would be sexy but but along those lines you would think that um the sexy things would be what is attract I mean, I think about this a lot in modern humans, which is now what 
what gets us a long ways is like computer skills and yes. um, academic success. Yeah. Uh, whereas we still have these drives that are uh, that are making um, people go after the, you know these professional athletes and and mm. um, and and you know big muscles or or whatever it, and especially with um, you know possibly signaling. Um, testosterone or beard or whatever else is like, hey, I have this hearty immune system. Yeah. Well, it's not nearly as important in our modern environment to have this immune system. Yeah, well, I, f I find it fascinating. Like from a person that studies signals in lots of non-human animals, to go into someone's house and then see their diplomas displayed on the walls. Yeah. You know, the medals from when they, you know, won some long jump championship when they were 15 years old. <laughs> I think I still have a bowling trophy from when I was uh, 15, right? Four, 14, maybe? I, I bowled a 235. <laughs> it's something it's not to be even proud that of. Great. <laughs> but for a 14 year old, it was. Yes. It's not displayed prominently in my house, but maybe one day. Yeah. Um, but but the same for people driving around in red cars. It's all they're all displays. And and when you talk about um, uh, hanging degrees on a wall, I mean this this kind of is in a modern environment um, uh, almost an honest indicator. And it, and it does kind of kind of show uh, along the lines of this handicap principle. It, it is showing. Look, I incurred this hot uh, this cost of learning a whole bunch of stuff that probably isn't all that useful depend you know yep. a lot of those general classes yep. are kind of forgotten by the time you actually get into the workforce or whatever mm -hmm. and are actually and but but you're displaying you know what are you displaying you're displaying discipline intelligence which uh, can be displaying even possibly um uh you might even be displaying your immune system considering how susceptible a brain is to yeah uh, absolutely parasites yeah but um it's funny, even though even those sorts of signals um, are fakeable to, to some degree. And so most signals in, in nature can be faked to a certain extent, but they can never be faked to a point where it becomes unimportant to look at the signals. There's there's no animals in, in um, the Kaplan University or whatever that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I study a, a species of of crayfish, um, which is found on the sand islands off uh, southeast Queensland. I'm, I live in Brisbane. Um, beautiful sand islands there. Beautiful part of the world. I haven't been to Brisbane yet. And, you haven't. Uh, I, uh, it's killing me. I want to. I love Australia so much. I want to see more of it. Yeah. Well, those islands are stunning areas to do field work, and and we work on this guy called the slender crayfish. And the males of this particular species, um, I mean, I don't know if crayfish makes sense to you guys, maybe crawdads or they're freshwater I creeks. Think, I think cray, yeah, crayfish, uh, we have in, in New Orleans, it's a very big thing. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, the, the males of these guys, they um, use their two front claws to display to each other, just like the, the fiddler crabs do. Um, and they've got this fascinating series of of like ritualized behaviors during combat so you get these two males that will come up against each other and then they'll wave their antennas at each other firstly and at, at every stage of this sort of um this dispute they one of them can say okay i'm not into this fight i'm getting out of here 
But from the first antenna wave, it goes into a short antenna where they, they look like they're bickering. They've got all these four antenna going at it. If that's not decided, then one of them will lay down their claws. Just put them down on the ground. The other one will come across and start tapping and rubbing its claws over the top. And then that one will put down its claws and the other one will do the same. And so if they don't sort out their differences at that point, then it escalates to a fight. And it's the stronger crayfish that will win the, the subsequent fight. But the kicker is, is that if they don't go all the way to a fight, then individuals that don't invest much in putting muscle inside their claws can get away with winning a fight that they wouldn't win if they went into uh, combat. So you can get these cheetah crayfish. They've got big claws, not much muscle in there, then can intimidate rivals, and as long as they're not challenged, they can get away with it. I've bluffed my way out of many a fight. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, you know the, the sorts of... Uh, when I see two crayfish coming up against each other and the whole routine they go through, I think I've seen that behaviour so many times at bars on, you know, a Saturday night. And, you know, they're trying to intimidate each other. They're trying to get the other one to back down. Starts with the, the smack talking. Yeah. Okay, now the coat's off. All right, that's another level. And then, yep. okay, well, now it's on. And let's have a little bit of a push and a shove yeah. and then we'll demonstrate yeah. our strength in a low-cost way. And then <laughs> that doesn't work. But, but they, these crayfish are fascinating because here we've got a case of clear dishonesty. And that doesn't make much sense because... The males will often back down. So they're still getting some use out of this signal, but you've got a proportion of the population that are cheaters. And I think that's the important component is there's a proportion that it's not a large proportion of the society, of their, of their population that are cheating, but just enough that it can be useful for the cheaters. But for the ones that are telling the truth, they, they kind of stick to using the claw size as a, as a signal. Mm. Uh, uh, one thing I haven't really talked about um, at all on the podcast is evolutionary stable systems and mm -hmm. kind of the idea of game theory, and it, which it, I think from a little bit of research, you're into game theory. Well, bit. yeah, I mean, the, all of the theory that, that under, underlies the, what we test in the crayfish and the fiddler crabs is based on game theory. I don't do game theory myself, but you know, I'm 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 familiar with the concepts of game theory. Yes. Same. <laughs> is that Not is that a scientific way of saying I don't understand the math? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I I work on the principles. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, that's a, and, and what is the um, is there a utilitarian function um, for those little antennas? Yeah. Um, so the the, the antennas are there for um, really picking up on the chemical communication between those, those ah. individuals. So crayfish are really into um, water sports, for want of a better description. <laughs> they, they pee and then they, then they wave it in their opponent's direction. And so there's lots of chemical signals in their pee, and that's what they're essentially trying to do is they communicate you know, their status how aggressive they are, and then at the same time trying to ascend, uh, assess the status and and aggression of their opponent all through these chemical signals. 
Wow. Because usually when I pee in a guy's face, it's on. There is no, there is no like, are we going to fight? Are we not going to fight? But it's, it's a clear signal, isn't it? it is There's a, no ambiguity there. Right. None whatsoever. Um, and then uh, a, another thing that you, um, uh, that you study is, uh, I, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but... Um, Quails or, or not not quails the 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 little mouse thing yeah they, I've they never call, heard the word actually that's I just, right I just saw it on I paper. love coming to the U S and uh, and watching people try to pronounce this one it's a, a qual qual yeah that's it well said qual yeah okay. that's right I've spent some time in Australia <laughs> I know. yeah. Um, Freshies or salties? <laughs> huh? That's that? pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that was my. I, uh, that was what I learned from uh, my trip to the aquarium in Sydney. Was how to <laughs> there's freshies and salties, and the crocodiles or alligators. That's or a kiwi accent, really. Um, <laughs> um, but it, well, first off. Um, I should I should just post a picture of all of these things that we're talking about. So go to the site and um and hopefully I will have done that. <laughs> um, and and uh, uh, one why is everything cuter in Australia is what I <laughs> is what well, I would. I'm like not to sure know. everything's cuter, but everything is deadlier in Australia. That's for sure. Oh really? Well, we've got the most well, dangerous spiders, all the different snakes. Yeah, yeah. You don't go swimming up north because you either get eaten by a crocodile, and if there's not crocodiles there, there's sharks. So, well, that's interesting too because, uh, like in the U.S., there's uh, when when people are arachnophobic or whatever, it's such a silly thing because there's almost no poisonous spiders in yeah. the the U.S. I mean, the chance of ever even coming across one in your life depending on where you live of course but is is very minimal in the u.s but we still have this wiring um kicking around but in australia i suppose that's actually coming in a bit handy yeah well i mean i grew up in the northern beaches of sydney and and that part of of sydney is home to um large numbers of the sydney funnel web spider which is the world's most dangerous spider and part of my entire routine um, as a child growing up there, it was when I went to put on my shoes was I picked them up and I tapped them and made sure there was nothing inside the shoes before putting my foot in because there was always stories, you know, every couple of years of someone putting on their shoes and there's being a Sydney funnel web in there, biting them on, on their feet and they are very dangerous animals. I did that with bees in cans of soda. Oh, I would yeah. always hit the can of soda to make sure that there wasn't a bee in there, but I didn't have to worry about. Yeah, and I, I, I actually found a funnel web in one of my shoes before, so it, it wasn't like without its function at all. That is that's right because it's it's funny because a lot of times when I'll uh, rave to people about what a wonderful place Australia is to Americans, like one of the things that will come up is uh, because people will watch their nature shows or whatever that are very dramatic and everything. And, and, and that's one of the things that comes up is, is all of the, Oh, there's so much deadly and poisonous stuff over there. And, and I'm always like, well, you don't mind cancel a trip to Australia because there's a few poisonous things. But here you are confirming that no, it is a dangerous. <laughs> you you have to check your shoes before well, you put them up. <laughs> like everywhere, when you go around the world, there's local knowledge and you know, 
you don't pick up a snake because it's probably going to bite and kill you. And if you don't pick up a snake, then you've got a much better chance of not getting bitten by a snake. So if you follow those, like, what I would call sensible guidelines, then you're going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, re I remember seeing a snake and uh, I think it was Kangaroo Island. I went to Kangaroo oh, Island. Then it's going to be a... Big tiger snake, probably. Yeah, I think that's what it was. But I saw it and I was just like, oh, I've never seen a snake like that. And part of me was like, oh, you should get closer and get a picture. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> because we don't really have that many in California here a little bit. But it's never, I mean, any garden snake, any snake that I saw, I grew up in Wisconsin and any snake that I saw was nothing to worry about. So I don't have any experience aversion yeah. to us. Uh, well, no, I, I grew up in a, in a place where if you saw a snake, then it's most likely going to be a venomous snake <laughs> and it's most likely going to be a deadly venomous snake. So, I mean, I'm not scared of them at all. I had, I had snakes as pets when I was growing up, hmm. but... I, I knew not to go and, and pick them up because that was a dumb thing to do. But maybe, you know, this is a, a good way of weeding out the, the stupid genes of a population. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> um, and it, I, now, that, uh, now that you're bringing that up, um, it kind of um, in line with what we've been talking about and, and I... I always end up getting so far off of what people end up researching. So you can reel me in at any time. But um, uh, but then once there are, um, uh, and we're talking about in-between species, there's indicators of a snake that it's like might have all these colors on it or something that's like, hey, stay the hell away from me. Yeah. I'm poisonous. But then um, other snakes might kind of fake that and, and develop those same colors to keep potential predators away yeah, from them even right. though they don't have the poison um to bite yeah i mean there's forms of mimicry in, in nature which which are fascinating i mean obviously there's there's animals that want to signal that they are dangerous and that, that another animal shouldn't try and mess with them and th i mean it's beneficial for the the individual that doesn't get messed with the one that's got the the big bright colors because then they don't get uh, a a possible big bite out of them from a, from a potential predator, but of course there's others that can that can take advantage of this signal by trying to signal themselves that they are big and well that are dangerous and you don't want to get messed with as well. So, but you can't have too many of those within a population. Otherwise, those predators will stop taking any attention, any notice of that signal, and they'll just start eating them all. So. <laughs> Mimics can only really get away with it and function effectively if they are not the most common within a population. Hmm. Um, and so, so back to the quals, and oh, yes, because those things were, I think those things are adorable, and and probably I wonder if the natives probably don't find them as um, as cute. Because what's the um, what's the like possum kind of things in Sydney? Um, oh yeah, are, the brush tail possums. Yeah, yeah. I thought those things were the cutest things I ever seen in my life, and I'd like get grapes and feed them. Oh, they are stuff. stunning animals, beautiful. And, and uh, but like the actual people in Sydney are like, 
don't do that. Stay away. They're, they're in our attics and they're a big pain <laughs> in the ass and everything else. And and then like Australians come to the U.S. and you guys see squirrels and are like, oh my God, that's the cutest thing. Ever. And we're just like, that's just a squirrel. Oh, the first time I saw a squirrel, I jumped out of the car and started running going, oh my God, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and everyone's staring at me thinking, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> he took acid today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So so let's talk about your research with the quolls. Okay, so... And I'm saying it right again. Yeah, right? quolls, yes. Quals. Northern quolls. So it's a species of um, carnivorous marsupial. It's about the size of a squirrel. Um, and they are extremely cute, beautiful animals. They used to be found across all of northern Australia, but we've released lots of um, predators in Australia, foxes and cats and dogs and cats and and... They have done a great job of nailing all these quolls. Mm. So they're not very common across there anymore. But where we study them is a, a place called Groot Island, which is off the northeastern coast of the Northern Territory. So it's one of the remote, most remote parts of Australia. It's an Indigenous-owned island, so we're very lucky to, to be able to go onto the island and study these animals there, and they're very common. So our study site is about one mile by one mile, and there's about a hundred and 20, 150 animals in that area. So super common. Now they are a, a fascinating animal for many reasons, but I'd, I'd say the most interesting part is that they're the world's largest semelparous mammal. So what I mean by semelparous is they have one big explosive reproductive event. <laughs> so let me try and explain what I mean by that because it sounds a bit wrong. A, an explosive <laughs> reproductive event? I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> So the males, okay, go from a, a grain of rice size. So I've seen a newborn quoll, okay, and they, uh, you know, as adults, they're, what, two and a half pounds, but they are born when they're a grain of rice. They crawl up the mother's um, belly into the, her pouch, and so 11 months later, the males will have grown to these big, aggressive, beautiful animals, about two and a half pounds, and then they hit breeding season. Before breeding season, they don't move around much at all. They probably move, you know, a quarter of a mile a night, half a mile at night. But then all of a sudden, the males have this switch that goes off in their mind. And I'm sure you're aware of a switch that goes off in the mind for, for, <laughs> <No>. for males. <laughs> and then they just start going on these long runs, trying to find as many females as possible to mate with. They have fights along the way. And we've put trackers on these on these quolls and and we find that they can go, you know, five miles in a night. They don't really think about eating much at all. They'll they'll eat if if it's an easy feed as they're running along. But it's all about reproduction. They shut down their immune system. Mm. It's it's all about finding the next female. And from over a period of two weeks, they go for these from these strong, beautiful, shiny looking animals to a bag of bones mm. where they've got all of these awful sores all over them that are pussy. They've got no muscle at all. They're losing all their hair. And then, you know, a week later, then they'll have just, they'll have died. And <laughs> you'll find their dead carcasses around through the bush. Wow. They, they just banged themselves to death. I have touched on um, a little bit, uh, uh, a few times, kind of this, um, Aleostatic effect of of um, kind of hormone regulation of of 
of kind of this idea of um, uh, of uh, I, I think in my very first episode I used a I used a Star Trek analogy of, of like <laughs> power down the shields, uh, uh, take all the power and send it to the torpedoes or something like that. And so it sounds like that's the same sort of because I, I think uh, I believe. Um, um, in in America, we have salmon that follow a similar absolutely. Uh, yeah, they're similar parasites uh, too. Yes, um, uh, where they they shut down their immune system. Uh, this is this is no time for these long term projects. We need to stick all our energy to getting up here and fighting these rapids and everything else to get to these mating grounds and then uh, uh, mate and and yeah, then after that, uh, it just uh, it, you've chronically stressed yourself to. To death, and all of your uh, um, all of your organs and everything else starts shutting down. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it is um, a fascinating strategy. And when I describe this often to people, the the initial question is, why the hell would they do this? Why don't they try to survive through to a next breeding season? And you know, it's a complex question, but I think what it comes down to is that these males have very little chance of surviving to the next breeding season. It's a year later. So they've got a choice. Do they invest everything in the here and the now or do they try and hold something back and try and survive to the next breeding season knowing that they're very unlikely to survive to that? And so nature pushes these sorts of crazy mating strategies because it is advantageous to do it and so what it's probably what's probably occurring is that those males that have decided to put every bit of energy they have right now into trying to get that extra mating in the breeding season now do better in the long term than those males that hold something back and try to remain till the next breeding season hmm that's interesting um, put all the chips on the table, and and males and and um, most species are are quite the gamblers, kind of similar. Maybe that that's definitely more toward the extreme scale because yep. the females end up living um much longer, right? That's uh, right. So we actually study two different um closely related species. The northern koala I've been talking about um is the larger of these species, and 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 those the females live for two to three years. So they, they don't invest everything into, um, into reproduction. They will um, have their little joeys and then they'll, tr they'll have a good chance of surviving through to the next breeding season. And so that they will try to do that. So for two to three seasons. Another species um, that we study around the Brisbane area is called an antichinus and both the males and the females they um, have the explosive mating system and they'll die shortly after mating. So that they're the, the, the females of the Antichinus, they will survive long enough to be able to wean their joeys. Um, that's incredible. Have you... I've, I've seen... I haven't really read much about um, this in particular and I'm... Uh, I, I don't even know if it's worth bringing up, but, but I have heard a little bit something about... Um, that when humans are in different environments in um in like kind of a more dangerous environment or there's uh, when there's a lower life expectancy 
um, it seems that one females become um, start ovulating at an earlier age, um, and and that possibly males are starting to compete earlier on and are uh, uh, and are competing more aggressively and end up having a shorter lifespan and and possibly what is driving this might be this same logic running through human behavior. Yeah, so it's an area of biology we call life history theory, life history evolution. And it's really the way that animals invest in survival and reproduction. So some species will invest a lot in um, trying to, to survive from year to year and only invest a little bit in reproduction. We've got another, are you going to pick up this? signal in the background of the dog barking i think i can edit some of it out yeah um and uh, we'll see this will be this will be a uh, uh a good challenge for my audio guy <laughs> to uh see if he can remedy some some i i don't think it's going to be that distracting usually when i listen um it picks up very close to our oh right so. okay yeah no that's that's cool i don't mind the the dog demonstrating <laughs> these signals at all um yeah so yeah, life history theory is all about how animals invest in in reproduction versus survival. And there's some species that will invest more heavily in trying to survive between um, reproductive events and therefore have to invest less in reproduction per round. Mm. Where um, there's other species that... Um, will invest more in reproduction per round. And, and the extreme is the semilparis. Um, humans are, are a species with, um, well, they're more along the lines of investing less in reproduction per round, okay, and then trying to survive for a long period of time. And, and it, that makes a lot of sense right. for humans because not only does um, uh, can we live a long time, but, Reproduction means that we need to raise the child until, you know, in the, our society until they're about 25 before they leave home and independent. Yeah, they're real costly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very costly. So, um, yeah, and, and a human female can only re reproduce basically once a year as well and only one child. Um, so um, maybe uh, this would be a good topic to kind of... Um, end with uh, talking with um talking about the quals and first off why why do you guys get everything with the pouches because i <laughs> how come pouches didn't take off everywhere i want to see more <laughs> pouches in the animal kingdom there. Well, the first time i saw your marsupial in in the u.s the the possum over here yeah, I thought, yeah. oh i get to see an american possum oh it looks cute oh my god what is wrong with that animal yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are terrifying they really. are they yeah, are they, nothing they like strictly. the beautiful yeah. like marsupials i don't i have. don't feed those guys grapes at all um so i i wanted to talk a little bit about um i found this really interesting um the I guess the the idea of balance. Um, I, I'll let you set it up, but but the idea of um, of these quals or or in any species, there's kind of this give and take in um, optimal um, kind of performance mm -hmm. and um, 
and physical exertion and everything. I saw one of the metaphors that you used on one of the blogs was about um, a squirrel running on a tree. The faster it runs, the easier it can get away from predators and yes. everything. But, uh, but uh, it's also leaving it self-susceptible to falling. That's right. So yeah, some of the, the work that I've been, I've been doing over the last few years is really understanding the way um, animals use their locomotion in the environment. And, uh, and quolls are a really good species because they've been really nailed um, on, on the mainland, really susceptible to predation from these introduced um, predators. And we wanted to know what sort of strategies these animals use when they're trying to do things that are important, like escaping um, a predator or even capturing their own prey. And um, it, it quickly became obvious to us that we needed to think about the idea that there's trade-offs in a way an animal will move. And it's, it's obvious for the way we do it in our society, and, and that is that it might be beneficial to move really quickly when you're trying to avoid a predator or trying to capture a prey item, but moving really quickly means that you're more likely to make mistakes. You might more likely to, to slip over. You're more likely to put your foot in the wrong place. And um, then you, you, as a consequence, it's, it's a really a balance. It's an optimum between how quickly you want to do something but minimizing the, the chances of a mistake. And we've, we actually first started to model and think about this idea by doing a lot of work on uh, tennis serves. Mm, I saw it, that. Yeah, and this is a really great opportunity to think about the benefits for hitting a ball damn hard which is it's less likely to come back at you over the net. You're more likely to win the point. Um, but, of course, the harder one hits the ball, the more likely you are to miss the target. And so there's going to be an optimum serving speed. And so we started playing around with these ideas using the tennis players as, as a model. And now we've started to try to use that to understand what animals do in nature. And um, and it's, it's really quite neat that there's – obvious parallels between what these elite sports people do and what these animals do when in order to try and escape predator they are actually balancing these these potential costs of making mistakes hmm. um because i mean that's so much of even um uh, uh, a bird like there's some bird species that cracks nuts or whatever and and they some researcher noticed that they were picking up these nuts and flying up to like four and a half feet exactly like all, all the time it seemed like the same so they took photographs figured out exactly how high and then they modeled it yeah uh, dropping nuts from these various heights to see uh the idea being you wouldn't want to fly up any higher than you have to because you're expending energy but if you fly too low the nuts not cracking and so they model it and, and they drop it from all these different heights and and sure shit, uh, four and a half feet, it just happens to be the, the absolute best uh, where you're optimizing those, those trade-offs. And yep. that's just what evolution has, has shaped from, um, through. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, animals are bloody smart. And it, you, don't, they don't, you don't have to think about smarts in terms of our human notion, is that they do stuff that allows them a greater chance of leaving more offspring. And those individuals that are much better at doing those the right thing 
they're going to have way more kids. And as a consequence, if their kids inherit this, this particular trait, then they're going to be able to do the same thing and do it just as well. So animals, all, all sorts of, doing all sorts of neat behaviors that are very obvious um, and make a lot of sense to us, they do it because it, it leads to having a lot more offspring. Uh, well, that's fantastic. I think that's um, a good place for uh, me to stop. Or was there anything else that you wanted to uh, to mention? Or um, I mean, there were other topics that I wanted to talk to you uh, about, um, but there's also a barbecue about to start here that we should. Um, <laughs> well, we should do some optimal on. foraging ourselves uh, right yeah. now, which means <laughs> I suspect a few drinks out there for the Australian lad. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can stay in here, and like the listeners will get a few more minutes of interesting uh, dialogue. But if we stop now, then we get first dibs on some of the, <laughs> the food out there. It's all about optimizing <laughs> costs and benefits. <laughs> um, well, thank you for um, uh, uh, using your time unoptimally and um, and <laughs> wasting it away on this podcast with me. Um, I, I think my listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation. And um, I, I hope uh, maybe I'll look you up if I'm in Australia sometime. Hopefully oh, I'll, absolutely. Hopefully I'll and if there's way. any listeners out there that want to follow me on, on, on Twitter oh, or anything like that, then that would be great. We're and, always traveling to fascinating parts and, of the world. And, and what's your Twitter? Um, it's... UQ Robbie Wilson. UQ Robbie Wilson. That's right. And I'll and I'll put a link on my site and everything. And then um really fantastic blog too, which is where I got most of my topics for today. <laughs> uh, is it um Wilson Performance Lab? Yeah, WilsonPerformanceLab.com. Um so go to WilsonPerformanceLab.com and and take a look uh because uh and and I'll tell you um the hard part about directing people to a lot of academic sites is that it's very jargony and there's a lot of, uh, you know, publication. And I think publications can sometimes scare off a lot of the general yeah, public. Sure. And I think you've done a wonderful job of having a, a beautiful blog with um, a very well-written and interesting and, and very accessible pieces. Oh, with, thank you very with much. pictures and everything else that are, are fun to look at. So, Everyone, please go and check out um, uh, Robbie Wilson's stuff. Go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and I'll provide all the links. Thank you guys for listening, and special thanks to my dear friend Marty Hazelton for putting Robbie and I together and letting us use her children's playroom to record the podcast. We're going to get her back on again uh, real soon. She's the best. Um, and next week... On the program, um, I, I'm having Todd Shackelford back. Uh, you may remember from episode nine, Todd um, uh, share, uh, explained sperm competition to us and talked about his research, and that, that was a very popular episode. And uh, as as I could have predicted, uh, sperm competition just one of those fantastic wild ideas that um, is endlessly entertaining and informative and mind-blowing all at the same time and what a goofy insight into how the world works um and so so go back and listen to that one um if if you haven't 
um, episode nine. Again, you should probably try to listen to these in order from the first one. There's no rules here, but it, it might might find it helpful. Um, so yeah, that was episode nine. Todd Shacklebird, and he's and he's back with uh, with him uh, and his wife are, are back next week talking about their research, and we dive into some real, real, real dark subject matter, uh, which is into just incredibly, incredibly important stuff. Um, stuff that we all need to learn about to inform ourselves to make some real changes in the world. So, tune in next week, and thank you guys for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, bat. a bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> <laughs> 